Welcome to the You Should Know This podcast by BCC Research. Our podcast features innovative companies and individuals who are working to shape, disrupt, and revolutionize not only their own industries, but also the way we'll live and work in the future. Each week, we talk to visionaries whose work is something you should definitely know about. Now, here's your host, Clara Mowit. Hello and welcome back. I'm your host, Clara Mawad, and as a content specialist for BCC Research, I'm excited to bring you along as we talk to the companies and individuals who are leading us into the future. Half of all habitable land is currently used for agriculture, a format that has brought us to where we are now, but it's not a sustainable solution moving forward, which begs the question, what is? Well, for starters, how about growing up instead of out? Yes, I'm talking about vertical farming, which allows farmers to grow crops on vertically stacked layers indoors. Aside from the obvious benefit of needing far less space, this style of growing crops also eliminates the need for pesticides and significantly reduces the amount of water required. With me today to help us explore the world of vertical agriculture is Nate Story, co-founder and CSO of Plenty, a company leading the charge in this industry by providing a solution to the ever-growing issue of land availability through their vertical farms. Nate, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. So let's start at the beginning. Could you tell us a bit about yourself and then how you came to co-found Plenty? Sure. So... um... Uh, I, I started as an agronomist, so I went to school and studied agronomy, uh, which is crop and soil science. And it's a little bit ironic that one of the first things I started to think about is how we uh, condense production and ultimately free ourselves uh, from the constraints of of the soil, of the land. And so um, that's kind of where I started. I started uh, looking at greenhouses and then vertical techniques to grow more inside of greenhouses. And it very naturally evolved into this field of vertical ag as all of these technologies got better and better and things got cheaper and more affordable. So um, that's how I kind of landed in this space. And uh, at a conference, you know, back in, oh, 2013 or something like that, I ran into uh, my co-founders at a conference and we uh, decided to work together to start Plenty. And uh, we've been trucking away, building uh, new technology uh, building a platform uh, that allows us to to bring a lot of crops in out of the field, grow them indoors, grow them close to the consumer, and grow things that taste awesome. So um, that's what I've been working on, and uh, and looks like we're there. Very exciting, and. I'm excited to dive into that technology in a minute. But before we do, uh, plenty really came to be a solution to an upcoming problem that we're that we're facing. And I want to start by looking at the traditional agriculture landscape. What are some of the main issues that it's facing right now? And then how is Plenty solving that? Yeah. Well, I mean, agriculture is under threat. And um, it's under threat from a lot of different things. We have, you know, um, we have development, we have, you know, sal- salinization or, you know, like increasing soil salinity, water salinity, so salts. We have a loss of water, like many of our aquifers are being very quickly depleted. And, you know, the land is only as valuable as the water. Um, We have uh, pollution. We have all sorts of interesting things. And, you know, the pressure, the release valve uh, for that pressure is, uh, you know, other practices that we probably wouldn't agree with, like cutting down the Amazon, right? Uh, We're cutting down the Amazon to grow soybeans, uh, to produce food. 
uh, for pigs that become food for people. So we have these, you know, these relief uh, practices, these release valves for the pressure that's being put on egg, but uh, none of them are good. And so as a species, as, as, as um, you know, the, the dominant species on our planet, it's up to us to figure out how we change our practices to release that pressure on the field and to free ourselves from the constraints uh, that the field is facing. So um, this is, a, this is a, one of probably the biggest problems of the 21st century. Um, this is probably one of the biggest problems ahead of us if we care about the planet and having a planet that our children want to live in and also want to have enough to eat. <laughs> right. So, um, and, and have good things to eat too. I, I don't want to make it all a dire story. It's, it's really about, you know, experiencing the fullest life. You know, how do we get to experience nature? How do we, uh, it, you know, in all of its beauty, how do we get to experience, uh, an unpolluted world? How do we get to experience food that's flavorful and amazing and fresh? And uh, how, how do we get that experience? And I think ultimately that's what we're trying to solve. I love it. And it's cool because on one hand, the concept of vertical farming, I think is pretty easy for people to grasp. Okay, you're gonna grow plants, especially plants right now, right? Up on top of each other, great. But there's, there's a lot of variables that go into this. And I think when we sit down and think about it, people can get the idea, okay, plants need, well, they need light, they need water, and they need a lot of things that nature just naturally provides. And one thing that vertical agriculture has to do then is really create this perfect environment. So what goes into that creation? What are the variables that you guys are working with? Yeah, so we, um, we give the plants everything that they get in the field uh, in a way that is usually better. And what I mean by that is, you know, in the field, there are a lot of things you can't control. And there is also this idea that in the field, they're just naturally getting, you know, this nutrition and this water. And the reality is that nothing could be farther from the truth. Uh, in the field, they're getting fertilizer that we put there. It doesn't matter if it's organic or, uh, inorganic, non-organic production. Um, you know, we're putting fertilizer in the field. We are fertilizing the plants and we are applying water. Um, so we are piping water from hundreds of miles away, thousands of miles away, however far away. And we're using that water to water those plants. So we're piping it up out of these ancient, you know, sometimes many tens of thousands year of years old aquifers, uh, to feed those plants. And so, um, you know, in the field, we have, uh, these resources that we consume or these resources that we apply, um, with low efficiency and to an uncontrolled environment. And when we bring them indoors, when we bring plants indoors, what we can do is we can give them all of the same things. We can give them light, but we can give them better light. We can give them light that is controlled. We control the spectrum. It's fine-tuned. Um, we can give them light in the right amounts and at the right times. And we can vary our day length to give the plants what they need and what they like. For nutrition, you know, we can balance our nutrients to, to meet their needs exactly, to make sure that they're as healthy as possible. Uh, for people and just for their own growth. Um, you know, we can prevent pests from getting to them. So we don't have to apply pesticides. Um, we can get away from pesticides altogether. Um, you know, we, we look at all of the things that happen to a plant out in the field that are good and we say, hey, we'll keep those. And then we look at all the bad stuff and we say, we can get rid of that. And so it's kind of, um, it's really a new form of agriculture uh, in a very fundamental sense. And uh, I think it's something that we can all be excited about. Oh, definitely. And it's neat because on one hand, it also seems like it's 
the easier method. Like you said, you know, it's not just nature providing all of this water or there's a lot of manpower behind the current agricultural landscape. And just this seems to simplify that process. Now, part of how that's able to even happen really is by controlling all of these elements to to very, very um, close detail. So talk to me about how AI and robotics is helping you achieve this and really allowing you guys to create plants that are very tasty and healthier for people. Yeah. I mean, the, the way to think about AI and robotics is to actually kind of tell the story of tractors, right? So uh, if we rewind and go back to like the 1950s, you know, the 1950s were this crazy, it was a crazy time in global agriculture. You had kind of the beginning of of the genetic uh, revolution that kind of drove drove the green revolution, right? Uh, Up until the 1950s, there were still parts of the world where tens of millions of people would starve every few years. Uh, Like the world was a very... Uh, was a very hard place for many, many people, uh, even in the 1950s. And what happened there was we did several things. Um, you know, one of one of the big things was figuring out hybrids, right? Getting uh, genetics that could grow anywhere and grow reliably and do the same thing every single year. Some of it was uh, the deployment of automation, right? So we went out and we said, listen, how do we uh, free people from the hard labor of the field how do we get a more uniform uh, field, right? So how do we make sure that instead of doing something with a hoe over here where someone is hoeing this row differently than uh, over there, now it's all uniform because we're using this tractor and now the farmer basically has this force multiplier, right? So instead of 50 people out there with hoes um, or, uh, or uh, you know, farms that had 50% of the land dedicated to just producing feed for the animals that would pull the plow, now he filled the tank up with gasoline and went out there, or diesel, and he, he plowed his field with a tractor. And that changed the economics of the business and also changed the quality of the product, the yields, all of these different things. And they all kind of contributed to the first green revolution. And trust me, there was no farmer back in the 1950s that was complaining about uh, plowing his ground with a, with a tractor as opposed to a horse-drawn plow or, or right. mules or oxen, right? So like this was a big step forward and we view robotics in the same way, right? So in our farm, you know, we could do a lot of this manually, but as we start to apply robotics and, and make these systems more efficient, grow more food, and that's what we have to do, right? We've got to, we've got to uh, produce three times as much fresh fruits and vegetables uh, as we produce today if we want every human being in the world to have a good diet. So we're not talking about a world here where we're taking business from the field, where we're competing with the field. This is, this is a world where we're adding to the global food supply in a way that's necessary. And so, um, you know, it's really important to kind of, uh, to frame the conversation around robotics in the farm in the same way that we framed tractors back in the fifties, right? It's like, we need to produce more food. Uh, and so we use robots the same way farmers use tractors to do more work, to make that work more uniform. So the product is higher quality. There's less food safety risk, uh, compared to having people touching it. And, um, it allows us to produce something, uh, with maximum efficiency, uh, a really, really great product. So everything that goes in the clamshell is the same as the thing that came after it. So, you know, that's how we think about robotics. It's kind of like our version of the tractor. And uh, our farmers are in there, and now they're pushing buttons in an air-controlled, uh, air-conditioned space, listening to listening to their music. Right, like uh, <laughs> it's it's a good life 
compared to trying to do that by hand. Um, as far as AI goes, uh, the way that I think about AI is it's statistics on steroids, right? Um, it, it's an ability to, to go get deep insights that aren't otherwise available, to, to find correlations, to tie things together, and to have a system that starts to teach itself, right? And um, so we think about uh, AI kind of in the same light as a lot of the data that started to become available, you know, in, in the latter really quarter, half to quarter of, uh, of the 20th century, right? All of this new data allowed us to make better decisions, to understand the world and the environment in a different way, you know, and in the field, it really helped us understand how inconsistent the field was, mm. right? So it helped us understand, oh, shoot, we, we put down the same amount of nitrogen fertilizer across the whole field and parts of the field just aren't getting it, right? Or parts of the field uh, are deficient in this this nutrient or it's, it's washing out. Uh, and so, uh, you know, that led us to change how we behave to try and make the field more uniform. But again, there are just natural limits to the field. So when we look to the indoor space, we have, um, we have this really complex data problem and we can use AI, uh, to help us understand what is true. Um, now I'd say the opportunity is is much higher in an indoor space because in the field we can say, hey, listen, uh, you know that frost uh, was a bad thing, and usually we don't need a whole lot of data <laughs> to know that a frost is a bad thing, right? right? Um, but uh, you know when we move indoors, we can start collecting plant level data, right? So we can we can start to understand the plant experience at an incredibly granular level, and once we get there, we move away from understanding what happens to yield in big communities to what happens to yield. Uh, at the plant level is part of a big community. And you know this is all kind of a very boring way of saying the power of our analyses is bonkers. And it allows us to go do really cool things because you know in the field, you can't control the frost. If the frost comes, the frost comes. Right. But in the indoor space, we can tweak everything. We can control everything and we can control it at the plant level. And so I think that's a really exciting thing for us when it comes to like, hey, you know, you want to bite into like one structure and has it taste just as good as that awesome one you just had. Um, you don't want inconsistency, right, in that experience. Um, same thing with a, with a salad, right? Like you want your salads to, to taste good every time. You don't want it to be kind of bitter or have different products in it when you taste it. And, um, you know, the ability to make everything uh, consistent indoors and to understand how these plants grow uh, gives us the ability to do that. So... We're moving from a world where product is inconsistent, and um, that makes it really hard for people to make the commitment to eat more healthy food, right. um, to a place where food is great. like It tastes good every time, and so it's way easier for me to eat a salad if I know that salad is going to taste amazing. Um, and not going to be a disappointment. <laughs> yeah. No, and it, I love both of those analogies. I think that helps paint a really good picture of what we're working with here. And it seems, too, that this is allowing you to have a more customized farming experience, which, like you said, allows for more consistency across the board. And then with the elimination of pesticides, you're eliminating the whole conversation needed about organic versus not organic because it's not even right. a problem anymore, which is very exciting. Um and I want to go back to something you mentioned earlier, which is you're growing the 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 product closer to it to where people are. And That's right. something that I think 
I well, I'm really I nerd out about is supply chain and how that's becoming more <laughs> sustainable and more optimized. So if you could, can you explain to our listeners, uh, especially for those who may not just be familiar with it, what the food system supply chain is and then how Plenty is able to have a 20 times reduction in that length, which is super cool. Yeah, I'll, I'll try not to get distracted and ramble here, but um, I got to say that I love that you nerd out on supply chain. That's <laughs> <laughs> there aren't a whole lot of people in the world who nerd out on supply chain. So uh, uh, kudos to you. Um, yeah, so the, the, the food supply chain is a really interesting thing. And if you think about the food supply chain, you got to think about it in terms of you're, you're, you're trading water and energy across long distances. That's really all it is, right? We're trading water and energy across long distances. Now, there are some things that are really efficient from a food supply chain. That doesn't mean that they're not risky or that it's a stable food supply chain, but that does mean you know there are some things that are less risky. So if we think about like growing wheat in the Ukraine, yeah, just as an example, right? So like Saudi Arabia buys a lot of wheat from the Ukraine. Why? Well, you can't grow a whole lot of wheat in Saudi Arabia, mm -hmm. right? And there's a lot of people down there to feed. And uh, that's pretty efficient because, you know, Ukraine can produce, they've got enough water and they've got a lot of energy, a lot of sunlight. They can fix that sunlight into carbon, uh, fix carbon with that sunlight and mix it with a little bit of water uh, to get carbohydrates. And then they trade those carbohydrates for money, right, in Saudi Arabia. And if we think about, um, you know, the different kinds of crops that grow in the world, uh, we have like this spectrum of efficiency, so on one end of the spectrum, we have something like, say, wheat or rice or many of the cereal grains that are low water content, high carbohydrate or high energy, and they store well. You can store them for years sometimes. You can sell them, you know, depending on what the market uh, is willing to pay for them, and uh, they have a long shelf life. On the other end of the spectrum, we have the things that we would consider nutritious crops, Right, so um, the Green Revolution gave us carbs in abundance, uh, but it didn't always give us uh, nutrition. And so, you know, that's what we're working on here. The problem with our challenge is that, you know, high water weight crops have a very short shelf life. Right. And unfortunately, many of the places where it's good to grow these nutritional crops, um, the cost of water. So, if we again, we're thinking about this as a trade in energy and water the cost of water is going up or the availability of water is going up. And so that's going to have a massive impact on both supply and the available, the cost of that product, the availability of that product. So, um, so what we're doing is we're trying to beat that problem. So today, if we're talking about something like lettuce, which is a nutritional crop, right? Mm -hmm. it's good for you. It's not as good for you as say kale, but, um, <laughs> but who wants to eat kale when they can eat lettuce, right? Uh, actually, uh, you know, people are going to get upset at me for saying that. Um, I'm just, I'm just a wimp. So I'm a flavor wimp. Uh, uh, kale is too much for me, but a lot of people love it. And our, you know, I, I, this is where I plug the plenty kale and say plenty kale is awesome. There you um, go. It's not like, it's not like field kale, but you know, if, if we're looking at these nutritional crops, like we're, we're growing them in California. So we're growing, there's basically like five places or so in the, in the world where you can grow these high water weight nutritional crops. And we, we tend to call these like Mediterranean climates or what have you, but, but they're basically climates with, with very temperate weather, um, you know, where you can grow year round. Uh, they're places where you can control the water that goes into the soil, meaning that they're, they tend to be uh, places with a little less rain, right? But access to water. So we can move water from the mountains that are nearby down to the fields. 
Hmm. And uh, they're a place where we control the, control the fertility and uh, of the soil. And so um, historically in the U.S. has been like, you know, California, uh, Central Valley of California, right? Um, and that's where we grow it. And then we ship it all over the country uh, because that's where it's effective and efficient to grow it. Well, you know, the short shelf life issue there means that by the time it gets to New York, that strawberry or that tomato or that, um, you know, head of lettuce is in very different shape than the day it was picked. Right. So if you're living in New York City, you're getting um, a pretty poor quality product across the board compared to what it was when it was picked. And that's a problem for a lot of reasons. I mean, you know, the nutritional value is not as good. The quality is not as good. So you're not going to eat as much. You don't want to eat as much. Um, and uh, there, there are, you know, uh, safety issues. There's, there's all sorts of problems, right, with putting something that spoils on a truck for a week or two weeks mm -hmm. and then putting it on a grocery shelf for a few days. And so, um, so that's kind of like this, the, how the, the food supply, uh, works for this. And, you know, the trends that are true in the U S are true across the world. If you go to Europe, it looks the same way, you know, like a lot of production happens in Spain and, and uh, Morocco, Northern Africa, and then gets shipped to Europe. Um, if you go to, um, you know, Asia, it's the same way. Australia, it's the same way. Uh, South America, it's the same way. And so, um, we really have these very, very long and uh, during COVID, we've realized precarious supply chains um, that aren't good for consumers, right? They delivered on cost for a while, but as water becomes scarce, they're going to stop delivering on cost. Uh, mm -hmm. They delivered on quality for a while, but as weather becomes less predictable, they're going to stop delivering on quality. And they delivered on yield for a long time. But again, as our inputs are constrained, they're going to be challenged to continue to to deliver on yield. So what we did was we looked at this and we said, how do you solve, um, how do you solve for food security, food sovereignty in places that can't grow food at all, uh, food security in places with long supply chains, uh, joy, uh, the joy of eating great food in places where quality is low, uh, nutrition in places where nutrition is low. And we said, there's, there's like a simple solution for this. And uh, it's not a simple solution per se, but it's on its face. It's a simple solution, right? You move, um, you move produce indoors and you grow it uh, in a protected environment. And, you know, we've been doing this for a long time. We've been doing this with greenhouses for 150 years now. Well, actually, a lot, a lot longer than that. But uh, like at really serious scales for, you know, about the last 60, 70 years, we've really been uh, getting into greenhouses globally. Um, but greenhouses can only control so much and they can only do so much. Meaning the sun, you know, this is just like an energy problem. Again, light, uh, th this is an energy and water problem fundamentally. So the greenhouses, you know, they're, they're more water conservative in the field, but you're still stuck with sun energy, right? The amount of energy input to the system is limited by the number of sunny days that you have or your, you know, your latitude. So, we break free of all of those constraints by growing indoors under artificial light. And we grow a few miles away in some instances from our consumers. And so they get something that's super fresh. It's kind of uh, an old fashioned uh, idea in a new embodiment, right? Because it used to be, you had a green grocer and they lived, uh, they, they worked with the farmers that lived immediately uh, in your vicinity. And uh, you got something that was grown there locally. There's a lot of seasonality, um, but you got something that was local. 
And um, what we're doing is we're able to give people that, that old fashioned experience of getting something that was grown locally and uh, fresh food. Oh, it's hard to beat fresh. Um, you know, fresh in and of itself is an advantage uh, yeah. to what we're doing. So, yeah, I don't know if that answers the question or not. I, I, I tend to ramble here. So just, you know, steer me back. No, um, not at all. I, I definitely think it does. I think it helps. Um, it sheds a light on the other side of the other benefits to this, which is drastically reducing that supply chain, which also has sustainable benefits just because you're not loading it all on a truck and you're not having that truck go across the country or on a boat across, you know, across the oceans, which is something that became very apparent, like you mentioned, during the pandemic, um, which is a good segue. How has COVID-19 impacted your work or has it had much of an influence? Yeah. Um, I mean, I think it's, it's really, it's done a few different things. Uh, the first thing it's done is it's made people really think hard about what is true when it comes to supply chains. And uh, I, I overuse the word supply chain, so I'll, I'll stop saying supply chains. Um, I'm going to get a lecture after this from <laughs> from the from the PR folks. Um, uh, they've they've told me it's a very unromantic word, but uh, you know the the reality is you know uh, we saw a breakdown of you know the system that we've relied on for a very long time to deliver things like toilet paper. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, we saw a breakdown in production. We saw a breakdown in transportation. We saw breakdowns at the distribution level, um, all driven by COVID-19. And I think, you know, what we're living with now is kind of in, in the recovery. We're seeing the similar like fragility of that system, right? Like there's a semiconductor shortage. Why? Oh, well, like this industry is ramped, you know, this industry got shut down, that industry ramped up. We're like rushing containers across the ocean. We're dumping half of them in the ocean. You know, there's just, it's just kind of chaotic uh, as people try to catch up. And so I think what we're realizing is that's a pretty fragile system. You know, that's a pretty fragile system. And I think that really hit home this last year. Most people uh, never thought they would be in a world where they were you know, like getting into fist fights at Walmart over a, a cart full of toilet paper. But right. uh, that happened this year, right? Um, hopefully it didn't happen to you, but but it happened to people. So, you know, I think, um, you know, that that's number one. Number two is, uh, you know, as people, people start to think really seriously about their health uh, in ways that they haven't thought about their health before. Um, and uh, this is a really, really important thing. You know, it, when we look at the people that, that this virus impacted uh, the most, uh, many of the, the comorbidities or the things that were correlated with the severity of infection uh, are diet-related diseases. Many mm -hmm. of them, not all, but many. And um, I think that that struck home this year. It certainly struck home for me, right? As I contemplate my own health, I'm, I'm, uh, I, I don't exercise nearly enough. Uh, but I'll tell you, I've been eating more salad. I've been eating more fresh fruits and vegetables coming out of this because I'm starting to realize, wow, diabetes isn't just, uh, you know, something bad in and of itself, but it also opens you up to, uh, you know, some of these other things, which are way worse. Mm -hmm. So, um, so I think, you know, people are thinking about their health and that's driving them to consume more fresh food. I also think, you know, the third thing is it really shifted consumption patterns. So people stopped eating out in restaurants as much as they used to, and they started cooking at home. 
And that's a really exciting thing, right? Because when you cook at home, you have more control and you can get more into it and uh, can become uh, more of a, pa a passionate affair, right? And I think that really centers people on good food. Like what does something good really taste like? And um, this one's important for me because, you know, I grew up eating during the summer when we, when we gardened, I got to eat garden vegetables. And most of my like great memories are in the garden, right? With my grandfather or my grandmother, or my parents or my siblings eating food right out of the ground. And it tastes so different. Um, it's an experience, right? You're experiencing uh, something that's fundamentally different than you get if someone else does all the work. Um, if someone does half of that work halfway across the country, right? And so, you know, I think the last thing that COVID really did was it drove people to focus on good things and, and the willingness to pay for high quality stuff went up, right? We have people that want, who are thinking about like, what is great, what do great greens taste like? Um, as opposed to just eating the iceberg cob salad from the restaurant that they usually go to. So this is an exciting thing as far as like centering people on the joy of eating and like what flavor can, can be as far as an experience. And so all three of those things together have really, um, impacted us. Uh, you know, we've seen our business grow pretty, pretty meaningfully through this and we see that growth continuing. Um, and I, I really hope that, um, the focus on supply chain, the focus on personal health and the focus on flavor and, and enjoying more of the process of, of, um, consuming food and preparing food. I hope that those are things that stick around. Yeah. And I love how you say the joy of eating and centering it back to that because it's so true. And it's neat to see how there are these positives that have come out of the pandemic, this being one of them and, you know, highlighting really the benefits that Plenty is providing. Now I can hear people thinking, okay, this sounds great. It sounds like it's solving all of these issues why is this not the main way that we're producing product? You mentioned that, you know, vertical agriculture, or really indoor agriculture has been around for around 60 years, mostly focusing on greenhouses. So like the way that we're doing it now is definitely a newer market. What are some of the main hurdles that need to be overcome in order for scalability to really take off? Yeah, I mean, I think... Um... Vertical farming hasn't existed because no one has no, no one invented it until pretty recently, <laughs> at least in the the form that we have. And to be fair, it's not because people didn't recognize the value or the opportunity there. It's just because the technology, right, wasn't where it needed to be to go out and do this, and the market wasn't where it needed to be. And frankly, the constraints on the natural world weren't where they needed to be, or at least awareness of them didn't exist. And so we're kind of at this unique confluence of these cultural forces, right? People caring about the environment, caring about the fact that we're hacking down the lungs of the world um, to grow soybeans, right? Like that, mm -hmm. that just feels like an idiotic trade. Um, and uh, I think people are thinking about those trades. Like what are the trades we're making environmentally? The technology is there, right? So historically, like how do you deliver energy to the crop in a way that's efficient? You know, until pretty recently, our lighting meant that you produced as much heat as light or more heat than light, right? And so you're taking electrons, you're converting them mostly into heat, which we don't want, and light, which we do want. But as LEDs have improved, we take electrons and we're converting them more and more efficiently into photons. 
And then, um, you know, the investments, you know, that Plenty has made means that we intercept those, uh, pro uh, those photons with almost perfect efficiency. And then uh, the R&D that we've been doing at Plenty means that we're able to transfer uh, that, that absorbed energy, um, you know, convert it to chemical energy more efficiently than, than anyone's ever been able to do that before, and then, then transfer that energy throughout the plant, put it where we want it. Uh, with more efficiency than ever before. So we're really just talking about this like stack of learnings and uh, advantages delivered by the technology and delivered by our own internal R&D that's empowered us to like come up with a model that both makes sense today and makes even more sense tomorrow. It's kind of like looking at say solid, solid state memory. Like when solid state memory first came out, everyone's just like, what do you, you know, I don't get it. Uh, it doesn't, it doesn't meet a need today. I can take this giant, you know, hard drive uh, spinning disc and I can do more work with it. And it took time for people to realize, oh my gosh, like there's a ton of opportunity here. It can be cheaper. It can be better. It can be all of these things. It can be more rugged, uh, before, uh, that kind of became like the standard form of, of, of memory for most of our devices now. Right. And it's kind of the same thing, uh, with, with, uh, indoor egg. It took a while, like five years ago, even the LEDs weren't where they were to make an economical business. But um, those improvement, those things have improved. So, you know, if you'd asked me that question five years ago, I would have said, hey, listen, we've got some big technological hurdles to overcome. That being said, you know, there's some amazing uh, uh, laws out there. Like, you know, you've got Moore's law uh, and we've got the equivalent uh, in LEDs called Hates's law, which predicts like LED efficiencies and, and costs. They're a semiconductor, right? And so we can do kind of these predictive uh, efficiencies and cost uh, projections. Um, we can look at the cost of computing, the cost of deployed AI, the cost of sensing, the cost of all of our technology inputs, see them coming down. We can combine them in like the internal uh, Plenty R&D, which, you know, Plenty leads the largest and has led the largest R&D efforts in the world on this front. Bigger than any university, uh, bigger than any, probably most of the universities combined, frankly. You wow. know, this is uh, 100 and, uh, what, 160 people focused on driving cost out and efficiencies up and building the equipment that reflects all of the, the, the possibilities of capturing that value, right? Capturing those advantages. So, um, you know, we've been grinding on that and um, we've, we've basically driven phenomenal efficiencies into the system. So, I mean, what we're looking at here is no longer a world where there's a technological hurdle to building an industry that's the equivalent of two times the global industry for fresh fruits and vegetables today. Like that's what we're talking about, right? Like this is a big thing. Um, it's capital intensive, it's big infra it's infrastructural in nature, right? Um, but we have something that uh, can meet the needs of the planet without hacking down more of the Amazon rainforest. I would say the, 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 the biggest hurdle in front of us is um, probably continual, continued cultural acceptance, right? Like there's still some people that live in a world where uh, they can deny, uh, like there's, there are people that deny climate change, right? Uh, right. If, you don't, if you don't think that climate change is the thing, then what we're doing feels less pressing uh, because why not hack down the Amazon, right? There, there are folks that um, don't believe that, uh, that somehow just think that the population is not going to keep growing um, or that think that uh, other folks aren't entitled to healthy diets. And uh, if you believe that to be true, then, then obviously what we're doing doesn't make a whole lot of sense. But 
for the vast majority of folks, like if they have time to think about it, if they understand the problem clearly, which is we're running out of land and water, like, and the land and water that's left, we don't want to take. We've taken enough. Like this has been a bad trade since the dawn of humanity. This has always been a bad trade, but it's a bad trade that we've made out of desperation. And so as a species, at some point we have to say, okay, we've pretty much converted all of the arable land on the planet over to agriculture. The, you know, at the expense of, I, I might get in trouble for this one, but agriculture is the most destructive human practice on the planet mm -hmm. by far. You know, in the last 10,000 years, we've wiped out a third of the world's forests and we're going to take out the rest of it. Uh, here pretty quickly, right? In an effort to grow food for people. And so when we think about the future we want to live in, um, if we accept that climate change is a problem, if we accept that all these things are true, then culturally we have to accept that uh, there's really only one alternative, which is figure out how to grow all this stuff uh, free of the constraints of the land, right? If we break that constraint with the land, all of a sudden it doesn't become necessary to go knock down every forest in the world to grow more food, right? All of a sudden, uh, we don't have to look at port, port parts of the world and say, you can't have more people, right? Which is, that's a really dangerous, uh, judgmental kind of way to, to approach things anyways, right? right? So like, we don't put ourselves in this, uh, you know, morally precarious position of having to continually make bad trade-offs, trading human life or the health of the globe for, um, for food. So um, all of that is a very long-winded way of saying culturally, people have to uh, have to to um, agree that um, the trade-off is a bad one, and we can't keep making it. And then I think once that happens, it's just waking up the capital markets, right? Because this is a capital-intensive uh, a capital-intensive um, process. As um, it is cheaper to go out and and build farms that produce the food than it is to buy land. Uh, to grow the same food, right? Um, or to produce the same amount of value from right. that food. So we're already in the place where it makes more sense kind of to start building these farms rather than to go out and say, invest in farmland. Um, and as we drive that cost down, we're going to be probably half the cost, then a third the cost, then a tenth the cost of buying the land. And it's like getting people's heads wrapped around this massive structural change. This, this kind of makes a lot of other structural changes look pretty tiny. Right. So you think about like what computing did for the world and you're like, oh, that's that's that was like the most meaningful thing in the history of humanity. And then you look at this and you're like, well, shoot, that might just be kind of cute um, <laughs> compared to uh, replacing, you know, this mass of of the world's farmland, uh, you know, just structurally. And then thinking about what the impact on people is. Right. It's like converting every man, woman and child on this planet over to a healthy diet. You know, what does that look like to give every single person on the planet an extra year of life? Like yeah. they're healthy. They live for one year. That's today. That's 7 billion years of human consciousness, right? Wow. We, we don't know how to uh, process the impact of 7 billion years of human consciousness, but those are kind of the stakes that we're talking about. And like, listen, like there are other ways to like get to all of these different ends, um, you know, from like a human health standpoint or some of these other things, but none of them are particularly joyful. Like you can go to the doctor and you can take more pills and live a little bit longer. Um, but I view us as building the road that allows people to eat a great meal and live a li little bit longer, share more time with their families over Thanksgiving supper, right? And live a little bit longer and be happier doing it and uh, know that 
their Thanksgiving dinner isn't responsible for knocking down an acre uh, of the Amazon, for instance. I love that. Oh, it gets me super pumped. And it's neat to see that we're really primed. Like now, like you said, the technology is there, the infrastructure is there, the capital will be here very shortly. It's already here, but at a at a bigger scale. Um, and I think culturally, people are, for one reason or another, going to hop on board. I mean, there, you guys address so many issues, different issues, but whether it be personal health or, you know, the climate, um, there's enough reason for people to jump on board. And I like to take an optimistic approach to that and just say, no, 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 people are going to get there. <laughs> we Maybe a little yeah. slow, but they're going to get there. Uh, so that sets me up great for my last question for you, Nate, which is, where do you see indoor agriculture in 10 to 15 years from now? Yeah, I mean, I think um, we will be in transition uh, towards one of the most dominant forms of agriculture on the planet. Ooh. Um, today, we are nascent. We're a baby industry. People are just starting to go, holy smokes, this might be a thing. Um, and within 10 to 15 years, so I'll put it this way, in the next two to three years, uh, at Plenty, we're, we're going to show that we've built a platform, not a farm. So um, his, historically in this space, people have tended to grow farms. So they'll be growing on these like flat mats or in gutters or something like that. And uh, it's sp both spatially inefficient and also limits the crops that you can grow, right? And um, what we've been working very hard on is to overcome kind of those historical design constraints or those design uh, foci of the, the, the industry historically and to get to um, to get to a world where we've built uh, a, a platform that is compatible across a broad number of crops that allows us to concentrate our energy on driving cost out of the system and driving efficiencies up. And as we do that, you know, over the next probably two to three years, you're going to see several new, really phenomenal, super flavorful, incredible things hit the market um, coming from our farms that uh, many people would have thought, well, that's crazy. I guess this is a thing. Within uh, three to four years after that, you're going to see crops starting to hit the market from our farms that are, are really going to have people uh, shaking their heads, wondering, you know, what what is happening. And I think, you know, that puts us at like the 10 year mark. And so I, I do believe within 10 years, we will still have, you know, 60, 70 years of nonstop breakneck growth ahead of us. Um, you know, wow. doubling, 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 right? Because the, the problem, the size of the problem is massive. Mm -hmm. The size of the problem is massive. Um, and the size of the market is, you know, feeding, putting food in the mouth of every person on the planet uh, is, uh, that's a big market and a reliable one. Um, and one that is guaranteed to grow. <laughs> right. So, so, you know, um, you know, we've got a very large market to fill. And uh, that's going to take time, especially once you consider all of the crops that need to move in uh, out of the field. But as we uh, embark on that journey, I think 10 years from now, people are going to understand that this is going to be a thing. And um, I'm hoping by then we'll have knocked down most of the, the, the hurdles to, you know, capital and deployment. And we're at the place where this industry can really go out and scale over and over and over and over again. Um, so, yeah. I mean, I'm definitely going to be following that because I think it's going to be so cool to see those developments happening in real time. And I know right right now people can go ahead and get your produce. Like it's available, it's in stores. Obviously that's going to grow. The types of produce will grow. Um, so I'll, I'll share a link with that in the show notes. But for people who are listeners who are really interested in what Plenty is doing, where can they connect with you guys? 
Yeah, so uh, check out our website. It's uh, plenty.ag. And, um, you know, if you just Google Plenty Farms, we've got some cool videos on YouTube that show, you know, how the farms work and some of the, um, you know, some of the processes and robotics and process uh, products. And um, then there's a lot of articles out there as well on what we're trying to do. Great. I'll make sure all of those links are accessible. Nate, thank you so much. This has been a great conversation and I've loved having you on the show. Yeah. Thank you, Claire. Appreciate it. Thank you for listening to the You Should Know This podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider subscribing or sending us a quick five-star review. Episodes come out weekly, and we're excited to bring you along as we talk to the companies and individuals who are leading us into the future.